Good morning again. Um, next week we're going to start a series called Twisted Truths, Parables or Stories with a Twist. And we'll start with the Pharisee and the tax collector. So that's what we'll start with next week. This week we're finishing up a series on the gift of rest. And the verse that kind of guides us, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus promised, I will give you rest. But before Jesus is able to give us rest, he's offered something. And that's what we're going to take a look at as we close out this series. There is a scripture. It says the devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We don't know exactly how this happens. Jesus is given a perspective where he can see everything. There's not a mountain that high that allows that, so maybe it was a vision or maybe it was a special effect thing, but he could see all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And apparently the devil has the opportunity and the authority to be able to give it to him if he bows down and worships him. When we think about something like this, this is the kind of the image we get in mind. Jesus looks divine and, and the devil comes alongside him and tries to persuade him. Um, if the devil meets the description commonly provided, you ever thought of that? You know how we usually think of the devil as a, you know, horns and pointy tail and red and a pitchfork. Uh, if Jesus looks, if Satan looks like that, if the devil looks like that, it's hard to believe that that would constitute a real temptation. You know, I mean, if, if the devil is really evil and malevolent, and how could that constitute anything that Jesus would think two seconds about? Um, what we know about the devil is actually there's a lot we don't know. With respect to the Bible, the, 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 there's, many, there's a lot more questions than answers. However, one thing we do know, the devil is an angel. He is a created being. He can't be everywhere. He doesn't know everything. Only God is everywhere, and only God knows everything, and only God is all-powerful. And Satan is none of these things. Um, it would seem that if the devil is divine, and, and I'm not sure about this, but I'll, I'll throw it out there. He might not have looked like this. He might have appeared to be divine like an angel would. Anytime angels show up in the Bible, people bow down to them because they appear as representatives of God, glorious. I don't know this, but it might be that that's what happened. When the devil appears, he doesn't maybe appear as a skulking, malevolent figure. You know, Jesus, come here. He might have appeared as glorious and as divine. And I have all the authority in heaven and on earth. And if you bow down and worship me, not a skulking figure, but a dynamic. And I don't know. It, but it, it could be what, I'm, what I am sure of. What I am sure of, I don't know what the picture looked like. What I am sure of is this. Jesus understands that he is the king's son. And he is the heir to the throne. And as the king's son, 
the father does not want him to bow to the king's servants. Angels are servants of God. Jesus is the son of God. Now, now whatever he looked like, it is not the father's will for Jesus to come and bow to angels. It, he comes to rule over angels, to sit in the throne of his father and to have dominion over everything. And that, and so he doesn't come to bow angels, to bow to him, he comes to rule over them. The temptation might be about bowing to angelic authority. Elsewhere in scripture, when anybody saw an angel, you automatically hit the dust. Jesus didn't do that. A couple things it says, with respect to the influence of angels, and let's just think of that briefly. What type of influence do angels bring? We think of angels as kind of being nice and fluffy. They, when angels show up, people usually die. They are soldiers and lawyers and guardians and fierce. Um, it says the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. It says the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. So when God gave the old covenant to the nation of Israel, he gave it to angels. And angels gave it to Moses. And Moses gave it to the Israelites. Remember, Mimeograph machines. Anybody remember mimeograph machines? You know, it used to be that you, you make a copy, and you know what happens when you make a copy of a copy, and then a copy of a copy of a copy. They get less and less precise as you go along. The same things with faxes and copy machines. Um, God spoke to angels. Angels spoke to Moses. Moses spoke to the people. So by the time it got to the people, the, the dicta, it was a copy of a copy of a copy. You ever play this game? You ever do the game where you give somebody a phrase and you whisper it in their ear? So you whisper the phrase in, in somebody's ear and then you have it spread from one person to another. Now you whisper that phrase in your ear. You whisper it in her ear, you whisper it in her ear. And then what usually happens, then you say, what was the initial phrase? And it usually doesn't end up being what you say. Uh, the same kind of thing occurs. Something said, something said, something said. Um, and then it goes on to, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. What it's saying, when God gives the Ten Commandments, um, it didn't have the ability, it told people what to do, but it didn't give them the ability to do it. Heard somebody come up with a couplet, do this and live, the law commands but gives me neither feet nor hands. A different word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A different word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Um, if a law 
had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the life. You can give people 10 commandments or 613 commands, which is ultimately how many there were. If you can give people that, tell them, keep these and you'll be blessed. Disobey them and you'll be cursed. If it was possible for that type of arrangement to cause people to do the right things and not do the wrong things, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But is that the way it worked out? If you give people conditional commands saying, keep this and you'll be blessed, disobey them and you'll be cursed, how did it work out in the Old Testament? Did it lead to obedience more so or disobedience? When the dust cleared, it didn't work out well. It didn't work out well. Uh, God didn't make a mistake, by the way. It's not that God did that and said, oh my goodness, look what's happening. Well, that's, that's not good. It's, uh, that's not what we have. God didn't make a mistake. He didn't dispatch angels and law to solve a problem, really. He kind of did it for them to create one. Look what it says. The scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. At the point there, scripture is the 39 books of the Old Testament. That's the scripture that existed at the time. They didn't have the New Testament. It wasn't It was only the first half of the Bible, not the second. We don't have the New Testament put into print until the 3rd and 4th century A.D. So at this point, it's just the Old Testament scriptures. And what it says, well, look what it says. Scripture Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. You know what it's suggesting? If you put commands in place and tell somebody, do this and you'll be blessed, disobey it and you'll be cursed. You know what you end up doing? You end up putting that person under the control of the power of sin, not the power of righteousness. That might seem strange, but it seems to be that's what it says. Would you agree? And again, we have to figure out what in the world would God put the law in place that if it served to strengthen the control of sin, why would God do that? Let's read on, see what it says. Um, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. That's the image of being imprisoned. But it says, before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So, the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Let me tell you what a guardian is. In the school system of the day, they had, especially in Greek and Roman culture, they had something called a tutor, Pythagogos. Pythagogos, here's what he did. So if there was a kid, let's say Taylor, um, I'm, let's say, yeah, this works. So Taylor's going to go to Rapid City and she's going to go to school. So let's say Randy is a little bit concerned that she's going to make it all the way there. Let's say we're in the first century. And Randy, as a devoted Roman dad, says, well, I need to make sure I get my daughter to school. So what he would do is he would select one of his servants to be the tutor. And so let's say I'm working for Randy, and I'm the tutor. Now, here's what I would do. I would make sure to get you to Rapid City. Now, I wouldn't teach you anything. My job would be to get you to the place where somebody would teach you. And in this illustration then, the law 
is the tutor. It brings us to the place where we learn. It, it's not what we learn from. Jesus is the teacher. The law is the tutor. Now, if Taylor, now Taylor's a good student, but let's say Taylor, she says, eh, nuts to school. I think I'm going to go to Omaha, or I think I'm going to go on to California or something like that. What I would do, I would hit the brakes, and I would whack her and say, nah, we're going to Rapid City, young lady. And I would get her to Rapid City because that's what her dad would pay me for. And the law is like that. It forces us by difficult means. So by the time we get to Jesus, we're not like this, feeling all great about ourselves. You know what life has been like under the law? More like this, weary and burdened. And this is how we would get there. And then you know what Jesus would say? Well, it's the verse we looked at. What would Jesus say? If a person comes having been under the authority of commands that they couldn't keep, and they made a mess of their life. And they kind of show up like this. You know what Jesus would say? <coughs> Come to me, you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You know what Jesus said to people who are under the load? Come here. It's a different arrangement. Um, angels are compared to jailers. Before this coming of the faith, we were held under custody by the law. This is kind of hard. It seems weird, but it indicates Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. If you want to create rebellion, you know the best way to do that? Put somebody under a, do this and you'll be blessed, disobey this and you'll be cursed, and see what happens. You know what ends up happening? Not good. It ends up strengthening the control of sin. If we're told, in my home, I remember my dad told me this once, go do this like a good boy. I have a decent dad, you know what I mean? But... Go do this like a good boy. Now, that's a tough thing, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you want to be a good boy, right? You want to be a good boy. But you don't want to have to do this thing to be the good boy. Do this like a good girl. Do this like, you understand what I mean? If I have to do that to be a good boy or a good girl, then I'm going to do it and I'm going to kind of go, you know, I wish I could just be a good person without having to do what you want me to do. I wish I could be a good person without having to prove it. And that's uh, that's kind of what, Scripture says that uh, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. It actually strengthens um, resentment, remorse. That's what law does. It makes you have to say, well, why do I have to do all these things? I think I told you the story, but I'll remind you again if I haven't. Anyway, there was this woman married a guy. He gave her a list of things to do in order to prove his her love for him. And she had to do these things every day, very clear in the marriage. He goes, you do these 10 things and I'll love you. You don't, and there's going to be problems. So she did the things, but she go to really resent the list. And then by some stroke of good luck, he died. And she didn't have to deal with him anymore. 
She married another guy who loved him, who loved her. And she, and they, she was rummaging around, and she was in a dresser drawers, and she was straightening something, and she hit something. She felt it wasn't cloth, it was paper. And so she, she took this piece of paper out and looked at it, and immediately she froze. She found the list of the things that her first husband made her do in order to prove that she loved him. And you know what she looked at? Is she, what happened is she looked at the list. She said, I'm doing every one of these things and more. But I don't have to do it in order to be loved, and therefore it's a very different thing to want to serve somebody that you love. Would you agree with that? It says, since seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire, for apart from law, sin is... Would you, what, what does that word say? Apart from law, sin is... Do you know what dead means in the Greek, the original language? It means dead. <laughs> it's not a tricky word. It's not a kind of dead, mostly dead. It's, it's apart from law, sin is dead. So sin wakes up law. Angels in law locked mankind under the control of sin. So you say, Mike, what are you saying? Um, that in order to give us the gifts of rest, Jesus came to annul the old covenant and replace it with the new. That's what he did, to come to give us the gift of rest. To not put, do this like a good boy, do this like a good girl. He comes to say, I'm going to bless you, and your obedience is going to be as a result of being blessed, not in order to get blessed. Would you agree with me? Do in order to be blessed is different from blessed and therefore do. Would you agree with me? Do in order to be blessed. That's different from blessed, therefore do as a response. Um, Jesus came to annul the old covenant and replace it with the new covenant, and he came to replace severe angelic divine representation with sympathetic flesh and blood divine representation. Angels are unembodied spirit beings. What we know about angels is that they are unembodied spirit beings. Sometimes they can enter a body, but they don't, they're not forced into it. They don't have to stay in a body. Jesus then, well, let me ask you a question. When Jesus was here, did he live in a body? Was he embodied? Well, that's what Christmas is, right? He was born from a womb. How about when he died? When he died, did he leave his body behind or did he take it with him? Was he raised bodily from the grave or did he die like most of us die and his spirit comes out and his body remained back? Did Jesus' body remain in the grave or was it resurrected with him? It was resurrected with him. You know what happened when Jesus entered a body? He never left it. You know what that means for us? You know what that means for you? Jesus says, angels don't understand what it's like to be inhabited, to inhabit a body, but I do. I do. I do. I understand what it's like to have feelings. I understand what it's like to feel cold. I understand. And therefore, from Jesus, you can get something you're never going to get from an angel. You know what you can never get from an angel? Sympathy. They don't know what it's like to be embodied. 
You know what you can get from Jesus? I understand that. Sympathy. If you've got somebody that understands you, is that a person that's a little bit easier to want to please and obey? Of course it is. Of course it is. Um, Jesus was and is embodied like we are. Um, here's what it says. Here's why Jesus really came. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. What it's saying? Jesus came to annul the old covenant and replace it with the new covenant. That's what he came to do. Um, and then it says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. God annulled the old covenant of the cross and replaced it with the new covenant. So what? So what? And I'm, I'm just about done. But let's be practical. So what? How does that affect us 2,000 years later? That's what he says. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Um, it talks about don't let anybody judge you with respect to religious festivals, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Was keep holy the Sabbath? One of the Ten Commandments? Anybody remember? Keep holy the Lord's Day? Keep holy the Sabbath? Is that one of the lesser known commandments or is that one of the biggies? Biggie? It was. Keep holy the Lord's Day. You know what it's saying? That Jesus came so that the old covenant would be replaced by the new and therefore don't let anybody judge you by what you do and don't do on Sunday. Again, so if you're out mowing your lawn on Sunday, the Sabbath was originally Saturday, but if we apply it to Christianity, you're out shoveling the lawn or mowing the lawn, and somebody says, you shouldn't be doing that on the Lord's Day. You know what this verse is saying? They're not speaking for God. Because God's not going to judge you by whether you keep the Ten Commandments or not. Jesus came to replace the commandments with divine commitments. You know what Jesus is interested in? Do you believe his promises? That's really what he's interested in. Do you believe his promises? Because here's the deal. If you believe his promises, you know what you're going to do? You're going to obey him. But it's not going to be because you're afraid of him. It's because you want to obey him. That's the way it works. It doesn't happen fast. Be focused on God's commitments, not his commandments. Um, I'm going to end with a little illustration. This is what the, the Holy of Holies looked like. This is the holiest place. So remember when Moses and he built the tabernacle and this movable shrine, he walked around in the wilderness. So... The middle, the, the middle of this thing was a box covered with hides, and on this box was emblazoned. You see those things that look like 
See these things? Yeah, of course you do. Those, they look like kind of horses, beastie things. That was an image from Ezekiel, what an angel seems to be representing. So that represents angels. Those were all over the box. They were on the outside of the box. This represents, when you get inside the holy place, there are two divisions. Where the, the candles and, you know, those three things that are in this, that would have been in the holy place. Every priest, priest could go there. You see that veil with the angels on it that look like kind of horsey things with wings? You know, horsey things, I'm not sure if they look like horses, but anyways. Uh, but, that, but that represents an angel. And behind that veil, that's where the Holy of Holies was. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And in the Ark of the Covenant was the commandments of Moses. And there was Aaron's rod. And so those things were inside there. Here's what happened. In 586 BC, that's when the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. The Ark of the Covenant was lost at that point. Now, those of us in the 20th century, we, we know that it's in some warehouse in Washington, D.C. because we've seen the movie and we know exactly what happened. You know, they opened it up, the guy's face melted, you know, so if, if we were glad we weren't there because if we opened the guys, and you know, our face would melt too because, because there, were all, there was all kinds of scary things in the box. God, God dwelt in the box? Does God still dwell in a box like that? If we found the Ark of the Covenant, would it be okay to open it? You sure? Would scary things come out of it? Does a harsh God who's going to punish you if you disobey, does he live in that box? And if you open that box, he's going to say, okay, now that we have it, now why didn't you do? That would happen. You know what? Here's what happened. God moved. He moved out of the box. And you know where he showed up in? He showed up in a baby. In first century Israel. And once he entered into a body, he never left. You know what it says in this? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word made his dwelling, it's tabernacled. You know what that thing called the tabernacle? That's what this thing, this thing was the tabernacle. God moved out of that and into Jesus. And when he entered Jesus, he never left. That was the place where if you did the commands, well, if God no longer lives in that place, but if God lives in Jesus, um, what do you, if God moved out, what do you have left? If there's no Ark of the Covenant behind the veil, you know what you have? An empty box with angels emblazoned on it. You have, and if you think that if you do the things that you're told to do and 
You know what that might be called? Again, I won't die. Kind of the worship of angels. Because God doesn't live in that box anymore. With angels emblazoned on it. Telling you, you better do those ten things. Or if you don't, there's no sympathy there. You know where there is sympathy? In Jesus. Uh, that's what he says. The word became flesh. Made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Made his dwelling tabernacle. This is why Jesus can say this. Come to me. Come to me. You who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. How's that sound? What do you have to do to get the rest? Listen to me. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. If you can be in place where you can learn about what Jesus says, you open your ears, you keep learning, keep learning, keep learning, keep learning, keep learning, keep learning. Because what it says, well, what does it say? Come to me, all you who are weary and burn, I'll give you, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. If you keep learning, what will happen? You will find, how does that sound? Sounds really good to me. I'd rather be this than that. Um, You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Let's close with the song. Father, thank you for good news, gospel. Thank you for sending Jesus so that we could have one who represents you, who is sympathetic, understands what it's like to be embodied, and he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He bids us to come to him, learn from him. He tells us we'll find rest for our souls, for our yoke is, his yoke is easy and our burden is, his burden is light. Um, doesn't mean that there's not things to do, but as we learn about him, the spiritual burden over time becomes less, not greater. That's the evidence that we've come to him, because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. There are things to do, but when we understand what Jesus is like, that he's gentle and humble, we end up finding rest. Will you help us to continue to experience that? Because it's what you bid us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Merry Christmas.